Hello and welcome to Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Joe Deloche and we discussed uh, practice compliance solutions, PCS, which is his company. But mainly what we did was we talked about the things that he's learned over the years in, in helping optometric practices comply with healthcare regulation and overarching law. So it's a lot of fun for me. It's always fun to talk to Joe. If you haven't listened to Joe or encountered him, he's awesome. He's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sh- sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. Listen, if you're trying to enhance a protocol in your practice, and you're trying to answer whether or not you can integrate this protocol in a way that allows you to take care of patients who have both medical and managed vision care needs, We've got the thing for you. It's called Total Patient Care, iCodeEducation.com. We also have a mastermind group that is quickly forming and quickly filling up for this summer that's going to start and launch on June 1st. So don't wait. Get access. We'll have a coupon code now in the show notes that will allow you to access that at a discount and jump on board with the Summer Mastermind Total Patient Care Group. It will help you answer the questions that you're struggling with within your practice to integrate new protocols and new disease state management. Check it out, iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E, education.com. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the flies study with Dr. John Nolan, and the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo control trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your Macchia Health representative now. Well, so Joe, I think what what would be a really fun conversation to have would be, uh, you know, uh, you and I have had these conversations before. Um, I love your conversations about the horror stories. You know, the like, you know, I was talking to my dad last week and, you know, we were talking about like the things that doctors fear. And one of the things that, that I think will happen is we fear like overcoding, right? That's the one thing that we always think about is like, all right, well, if I had code a level four and it should have been a level three, the doctors just yeah. like kind of don't do that and they they think, oh, I'm going to jail. But but that's not really like a big fear thing, right? If it's an honest mistake and it's uh, – and the, the worst case, if it's honest, right, if it's not fraudulent, the worst case is that they come back and say, okay, well, you owe us this $15 per exam plus, you know, the difference, whatever that difference was, plus penalties, right, or maybe a small penalty. And it, it could add up. But the real thing that's going to cost dollars for doctors is not that overcoding situation. The real thing that's going to cost doctors dollars is the compliance issues that you're a wonk in. So that's really what I thought would be fun to talk about is is the stuff of like, 
you know, the HIPAA violations, the OSHA violations, and some of the horror stories you've seen. Yeah, we can do that. Throw HR in there as well, because that, that's probably one of the biggest well, things that we're dealing with. I mean, I've had well, then, Joel, three, talk about let's yeah, let, three three this week, three wrongful termination suits this week. It's crazy. What happens? What happens in those scenarios? Okay, so not being specific with that those that that case names that kind of stuff. But where do people go wrong with wrongful terminations related to HR? And yeah, we'll start there. So sometimes it's not a matter of going wrong. So you can really answer it two ways. I mean, can you get a wrongful termination because you didn't do things the right way? Absolutely. Uh, that's usually due to having no documented policies to fall back to. So an employee says, you did this or did not do that, and you don't have any kind of policy to say, well, this was our policy and we followed it. Uh, so it's one of those without, you know, I always say these things, and this really applies to not only wrongful termination or HR, but to anything in compliance. It's just like you and I talk about with the medical record. You know, it's that old famous, not written down, not done. Well, that applies to these things too. You don't have it written down. It's not, you didn't do it. So having said that, if you have policies it's amazing how many times we see good policies that they just didn't follow, which is kind of silly number mm. two. And mm. then silly number three is just like a medical record. They just didn't document that they did something. So it's like, well, I sat down and talked with the employee about this and I did this and did that. Well, was that written down? No, we just had a verbal conversation. It's like, well, take that to court. They're going <laughs> to, they're going to be real pleased. Uh, but you're just not going to win because uh, it's back to that not written down, not done. So specifically what people get in trouble with recently, probably in the last several years, is either discrimination or some type of disability accommodation. Uh, discrimination being the big one. And we're, we're literally training the workforce what that means. We're not. Uh, but Facebook is. Mm. Uh, billboards are. I mean... In, in, one, in one of my lectures, I say one of the biggest problems in HR right now is your employee knows more about HR law than you do. And it's, it's a very true statement. So the employees, you know, and there's, there's always a nut out there. It's, it's it kind of, I, I don't know if we talked about this with malpractice, but I was talking to Bethany Fishbein about malpractice. And it's like, well, how do you completely avoid a malpractice lawsuit? And it's like, you can't. Uh, because if you see enough people, you're going to hit a nut. And it's kind of like that with the big practice and employees. I mean, at some point, you're going to hit a nut case. And I shouldn't really say it that way because it could also be someone whose life just went awry for whatever reasons. You know, and we've got horror stories around that. Uh the, the office manager that was your most loyal employee picked up your kids from school. This is a real case, but I'm not going to be specific, but the, this is the real thing. Picked them up. I mean, did your banking for you, uh, worked for you for 35 years, then ends up in a nasty divorce, gets in a rebound relationship with a crackhead boyfriend, 
and he's stealing all her money, and she's in rebound, and you, and so she starts stealing from the practice, and you know, it, it, these are ugly, ugly stories, but I put them all in the category of life because that's just life happens, and by the grace of God, some of us don't ruin our lives, and some people do. So you can't avoid all of this stuff. You just have to be prepared for when it happens. Um, so discrimination is a big one. Uh, you did this hey, for Joe, Sally. Joe, when you think of discrimination, Joe, when you think of, of uh, discrimination, um, that would that would run the gamut from uh, sexual orientation to uh, disability to pregnancy. What about sickness? Like, what about a chronically late or sick employee? How does that, yeah. can that be now considered discrimination? Well, it can. Anything, well, it, it really falls into disability, which really isn't the same as discrimination. Um, you can discriminate based on a disability, or you can fail to attempt to accommodate a disability, two kind of different things. So, I, I just tell you one of the story, the story from yesterday, um, and this is where the law just doesn't work in the employer's favor. So, I get a call. Uh, we've got an employee. Um, she's been with us about nine months. Uh, first three or four months was doing great. Got through probationary period, great, and then just starts not showing up on time. First time, ten minutes. Then it's thirty. Then it's forty. Then I don't even call in till 11 o'clock, and then my car wouldn't start. And then it just becomes three or four days a week. It's always something going on. Ride them up, you know, can't do this. We're relying on you to be here on time, et cetera, et cetera. And then in one phone call, they'd, they literally had already decided that they're going to terminate this employee and had every reason to whatsoever. One text to the office manager says, I can't come in this morning. I have morning sickness. Well, mm. she had not informed that at all that she is pregnant. But by the law, the law says that they don't have to come and tell you I am pregnant. It's were there situations that you would have inferred that is the case. Well, there's not much that happens to cause morning sickness except pregnancy. So, you know, when this one, when this one goes to an attorney, you know, if I have a couple, say, if I have a few too many drinks, if I have a few too many drinks, Joe, I might have morning sickness. <laughs> um, yeah, but you're, this is a female. Uh, I, I suppose it could, but the point is, okay, it's, it's kind of obvious, kind of yeah. obvious what was going on here. <laughs> so she files a wrongful termination lawsuit based on um, them not wanting to accommodate her pregnancy. This is the kind of stuff that happens. Now, they're in pretty good shape, but it's just recognizing these small things that you really have to do because now they're going to have to get an attorney and fight this. And even if they win, it's a hassle and you end up paying money to get out of it. And it's just bad. So it's the kind of thing, discrimination, you know, so yes. That can be sexual, but it can also be, honestly, the most common is you're just being an ass to your employees. It, it really falls under what they call mm. a, uh, a um, 
the, the new category is literally bullying. Uh, so you're just being a bully. Uh, you're just treating me badly, you know, and it's like common sense is how you get out of most of this because you just be nice to people. Um, but and, and the discrimination comes in, especially, I mean, if you are an overt bully to everybody in your staff, that's one thing, but that's typically not what gets you in trouble. It's the employee that you don't pay attention to or you don't treat equally fair or, or you have your pets. Um, and this is all it's hard to avoid because it's our common, it's our, it's our normal nature to have employees we like better than someone else. But in this day and age, that doesn't play well. So then uh, let's, let's talk then about the sickness issue. So, so we, we said clearly it's, it's a problem if it's pregnancy, that would, that would be a problem. But let's say it's a patient that um, would it, would, like let's say they had Crohn's disease or let's say they had um, some sort of non-controlled inflammatory arthritis that made it really challenging for us to, uh, for them to come into work and feel comfortable. When does it become a sickness versus like a disability that's like, look, this thing is just impacting your ability to come to work and you're not productive versus like now I can't, I can't let you go because of it. Yeah. Well, this is this is a little bit like what you were talking about with, you know, I, I'm afraid if I code this one exam too high, I'm going to jail. Well, it, there's this fear out there that if I don't completely provide for every single thing that goes wrong with one of my employees that I'm going to get sued. Uh, and that's not really the case. And the law doesn't even support that. You have to start with this all falls under the American Disabilities Act. Um, and the first thing in that law is that it only applies if you have 15 or more employees. Now, having said that, I'm going to say erase what I just said, because the courts are really not following the law anymore. <laughs> They're kind of saying, I don't care how small or how big you are. It's your job to try to help people. Now, the law really <laughs> gives everyone an out by a very stated clause that says you you need to make a reasonable attempt to accommodate as long as it does not impose some undue hardship on the practice. Well, reasonable and undue hardship are the two terms that are problematic because they're subjective terms. But the law usually is not overbearing on this. So we let's just let's use your Crohn's example. Uh, I've got Crohn's and I'm having trouble in the morning and I have to take off half a day more often or I'm coming in late more often or I have to leave because it's acting up. Now, there's let, let's say that you're, you know, you're not this massive 50 employee practice. Let's, let's get those out of the way because the law is more onerous the bigger you are. But in most optometric practices like we would deal with, Yes, you have an obligation to make reasonable accommodations. What's reasonable? Well, maybe if you redefine her schedule or his schedule a little bit, maybe that helps out. Uh, maybe if you provide them a, a break or rest period, that helps out. These are all like reasonable things to consider. But to be perfectly honest, Chris, you it falls to that second thing, which... It can't pose an undue practice on your practice. So 
you've got four employees and one of them has Crohn's, it may not it, it may not be reasonable at all for you to say, well, you can continue to work here, but you can go home at two o'clock every day. That may just may not work for your practice because you may have to hire a part time person. And the government says it ha- it can't you know it can't financially devastate you. So there's that line between doing what we all want to do because we have a heart for our employees and what the law demands that we do. So there's never any totally right answer, but you have to, in your own mind, say, what was reasonable that I could have done, and is that going to impact my business? Now, now I take off my Joe the Optometrist hat and put on my uh, evil attorney tap, or, or not really the evil attorney, but just the absolute legal answer. And the legal answer, or the really the, the, the bottom line answer is, you have a practice to attend to. And as, as nice as you want to be, you have a practice to attend to. And you have patients that rely on that. And you have other employees that rely on that. And that has to filter in to making a bad decision that impacts everybody in the practice trying to be nice to someone and and on, people may come back and go, Joe, you're being an ogre now. You know, we should always be nice. And that's true, but there's a limit. And you can't hurt your practice because, I mean, the law allows you at a point in time to say, I'm really, really sorry that this is affecting you, but this is not fitting in with what we need for our practice anymore, and we're going to have to let you go. And that's not wrongful termination, and that's not not meeting disability requirements. That's reasonable and undue harm to the practice. So it's a fine line, and sometimes legal counsel helps with that, and sometimes just talking it out with some HR person or you know some of us that deal with this helps come to a better decision. But you don't have to to always keep people just because they have a certain disability. You know, so um, let's say that a person, like you're worried about this, you're worried about, you know, getting rid of somebody or, you know, wrongful termination. Is there any, is there any benefit or legal things you'd have to worry about by taking somebody maybe from full time down to extremely part time where you can say, look, I, I didn't have a job for you to do 40 hours a week, but now I got one for 10. So if you want to keep the job, no benefits, blah, 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 blah. Is, is, is there any pitfalls in that? If you're really worried about uh, something like that. No, and, you know, it, it, the decision really has to be, I mean, are, and I'm just going to assume you're doing that because this really is the situation in the practice. I can keep you 10 hours or whatever. Or am I doing that just to try to run you off? And, you know, really, really good yeah, attorneys kind of look I think the other, the other question, yeah, I think that's the question is, is like, let's say I'm, I, this person is not working out. There was the situation you described. Patient was late, chronically late, goes for weeks, months. I don't correct it very well. And then they say, well, I've got morning sickness. And you say, look, you know, we just, we're downsizing and we'd love to keep you, but we can only keep you at this level. And, you know, now all this, and you're just kind of trying to 
eke them out. You're saying an attorney is going to be able to spot that. Well, a lot of it's, uh, it's, I can go back to this exact case. A lot of it's going to be what has been your nature. I mean, so in this particular case, when I said they're going to be okay, um, they've had three pregnant employees in the last two years and they treated them all very well. They did not just pay them for six, you know, six weeks or anything like that, but they did everything they could and they had their job come back to if they could. Uh, so there's a history there of how you acted. Discrimination would be absolutely, this is the way I normally do it, but in your case, I'm not going to. And that's where you have to defend, you know. And so now it's like, well, my defense is she's a lousy employee and I don't want to keep her. But unfortunately, when you get into these discrimination disability things, the court is going to be on their side for sure every single time. So what? So let's let's summarize the staffing issues uh, pretty quickly, and then obviously PCS can help with some of this stuff. But preventing that situation is be nice to people, be nice yeah. to your team, treat them all fairly, yep. write them up appropriately when when they need corrective action. Yeah. What am I missing? Have good policies in place. That's right. Make, okay. make sure that not hard. Make sure, that, yeah. Make sure those policies are compliant with your state, which you know, in in your state, they don't really bug employers too much, but some states yeah. have more state laws than federal laws. So, you know, we we see a lot of HR manuals that are I, I call them handed down through the ages. You know, it was the one that the guy had when they bought the practice. And then they gave it, you know, they sent it over to Chris and he looked at it and said, change this. And they sent it to Joe and change this, you know, and you end up with this hybrid something at the end that breaks about half the laws. So make sure it's a current, up-to-date, legal document compliant with all the laws. That's the biggest defense you have. And then the second defense is follow it. Follow it. And then you're right. Be nice to people. Why not? I mean, goodness. We would have a whole lot less issues here if that would happen. Um, the the one other thing I'll add that we're kind of closing in on on this part of it is you got to really be aware of what's going on in your in your business, uh, and the law actually says you have to. So, in things like discrimination and that, it, it's not a very good defense to go. Gee, I didn't know that the optician was harassing my technician because the law kind of says you have an obligation to know that. Now, obviously, you can't always know everything going on, but a lot of that is really staying in close communication with your supervisors, make sure they're trained to spot these kind of actions that could be problematic for you, and talking to your employees, you know, walking around, hey, everything's going on, you have any problems, everybody happy? Uh, just checking in uh, is a good thing. But you do kind of have an obligation to know what's going on inside your business. Cool. Thanks. All right, so so let's talk HIPAA. Um, yeah. What What is the problems with HIPAA? Where do people get concerned about HIPAA that is probably not as big of a problem? 
what should we be looking at with our practices from a HIPAA standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. HIPAA is one of my, it's kind of one of my least favorite and favorite things to talk about because it, it is literally one of the most un- misunderstood laws out there. Uh, everybody thinks HIPAA is this, you know, gargantuan Godzilla that throws flames and, you know, you, you violate this one little thing and your practice is burnt down. And HIPAA is an amazing law. It it has very, very few thou shalls. It just has this overlying principle of you have an obligation to protect your patient's information. And it, I love to listen to some lectures and stuff where they go, okay, if you're going to be compliant with HIPAA, you have to have a you know Windstream X700 router because it's the only thing that has the complex software that complies with HIPAA. HIPAA never said the word router anything in where it was written. It just says you. it's back to that reasonable attempts again. The second thing that's misunderstood about HIPAA is it was written on the concept of what they call scalability, which means HIPAA openly states that we do not hold Chris Wolf and his however many employees you have, uh, we'll say 25. We don't hold Chris Wolf and his practice yeah, 12. with 25 12, employees yeah. to the same standard that we hold Scott and White Hospital with 500 physicians and 2,000 employees. That is unreasonable for us to expect. But a lot of HIPAA programs try to say this is the standard, this is what you must comply with. Mm. And that's also not the way HIPAA was written. So. Um, one of the biggest misunderstandings in HIPAA is this laundry list of thou shalls, which really don't exist. It's a overlying principle that's applied to each individual business. Now, you said, what do you have to have? You do have to have policies. So you have to have written policies that comply with how you have evaluated your practice and determined how you're going to protect patient privacy and information within your practice based on your financial potential or your financial, you know, ability, uh, where it is. Someone's uh, a practice that is in East Dallas, which right now is one of the hottest crime areas in the United States, is going to be different than a practice in, you know, Othila, Kansas somewhere, you know. All of that is taken into consideration in HIPAA. It's not a boilerplate law. It's how does it relate to you individually. So you've got to have policies. They have to be based on your business. You definitely have to conduct a risk assessment, a security risk assessment. But again, within that security risk assessment, there are almost no you have to. There are These are guidelines. How does that apply to your business? So HIPAA is a very, very, very interactive law. It's very interactive with your individual practice. And so if we make a boilerplate program that fixes Chris's practice and fixes the 600-physician hospital, Chris has got a very onerous job on his hands to complete. But that's not the way HIPAA was written. Young and emerging presbyopes can be tricky. 
these patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. We've had this lens now for long enough that we've been able to see how simple transitions can be from an adaptation standpoint from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. The MyDay multifocal material is CooperVision's softest one-day hydrogel lens and features Aquaform technology combining the unique balance of high oxygen permeability with natural wettability in one material. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. One of the challenging things with patients is that when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and customized lenses, occasionally it can be difficult to keep those lenses clean, scratch-free, and smudge-free. Now, we have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients a best-in-class anti-reflective coating that is also resistant to scratches, smudges, and deposits. This means that patients spend more time enjoying clear and comfortable vision and less time caring for their lenses. So remember that you can provide patients with the best in quality, best in class, transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com backslash Crizal. The problem with it is just the unknowns and the unknowables and the vagueness that people struggle with. And unfortunately you see them, you know, you kind of bury your head in the sand where you're saying like, do a, do a security risk analysis. Yeah. Okay. You're fine. If you, I mean, that's one step, do that step, uh, have policies in place. Um, one of the things that I encountered one time with a patient that <clears throat> again, to your point, he knew more about HIPAA than I did, but <laughs> it was, he wanted to access his records. So he wanted yeah. to not only have us print off his records, he yeah. wanted to inspect his entire record in our office. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember what it was related to. It was just, it was, a. I mean, again, um, I would like to say this guy was having a bad day, but he was a weirdo. I mean, just a total weirdo. And, uh, and so he wanted to look through um, because, and then he wanted to edit his record. Yeah. He wanted to actually yeah. change things in the record, which yeah. he has the ability to do. I didn't know that until until we encountered encountered this so those are the kind of things within hipaa that people probably don't really realize yeah so there i I said there's not a lot of those that most of the rules could be half of them relate to the exact topic you just brought up which is access to medical records and all of the new edits or the amendments that are coming in hipaa are all more access the patient has to their records um, but you're right. They do have three rights. They have a right to a copy of it, uh, and it's a copy in whatever format they want. Uh, so they can say, I want it on a piece of paper, or I want it emailed to me, or whatever format they want. They do have the right to inspect in your office. Um, now, the law says they, can, they can't just walk in and, and demand that. It can be scheduled. They can be supervised. They can't just sit there at the keyboards. As a matter of fact, 
They can't touch the keyboard. They can look at the record, but they really can't go manipulate it, which is the third point about they have the right to change it. And clarify that just a little bit. They have the right to ask you to change it, um, but they don't have the right to demand that you change it because they can ask and you can say no. Um, and, you know, when, when people say, well, what should I say? In most cases, the answer is no. Uh, if your medical record was conducted correctly and they come in and say, you know what? I don't want the fact that I have migraine headaches in my history. It's like, well, I'm sorry. That's appropriate medical documentation. I'm not going to take that out of your record uh, simply because you don't want it in there. Now, are you going to make people mad? Yes, but you said it. The people that come in and do this kind of case are the real outliers. And, you know, I hate to kind of classify them this way, but they're almost like patients you would just as soon go down the road uh, because they're kind of a grievance to your yeah. practice. But they do have those rights. They do absolutely have those rights. The yeah, number it's hard one because, you know, I, I say, okay, well, he would. Go ahead. Oh, the, the number one cause of a HIPAA complaint is failure to release their medical records. If you check with state yeah. boards, they'll tell you it's almost yeah, so one that's, number so, one. If not, yeah, if not the number one cause of a complaint with the state board is you yeah. wouldn't give me my records. Yeah, the so this, this particular, you know, I, I classify them as crazy. I mean, it, it's it, I shouldn't say. I mean, you just don't see the the way he went about it. Reasonable people don't go about it that way, uh, and. You know, reasonable people would request a record and you'd, you'd have 30 days based on HIPAA to supply it. Most of us do it like that. Um, and then, you know, if there's something that, that's incorrect, you know, I don't mind if somebody wants to inspect their record. I don't really mind it. But it's not like the normal, the quote unquote normal person that comes in and, and like the Joe Deloche that comes in and be like, hey, Chris, I just would like to take a look at my record to make sure it's accurate. That just doesn't usually happen unless there is some reason for somebody to think that. Then you kind of reflect on yourself. It's like, did I do something that made this patient uh, think that they needed to check the record? Did I? But no, I, I didn't because otherwise you'd expect a lot of patients to do that. So yeah. that's exactly what we did. Was we had um, we had him sit down and, and he watched and he looked and he, there were there were things that he put on his history form. So on his intake history form, he had a, a whole bunch of retinal history. And he wanted it out of the chart because we were opt I was an optometrist and not an ophthalmologist. So he didn't <laughs> think that it needed to be in my chart. And so what I, what I did, what I accommodated with him was I said, I said, well, I'm not taking that out. It's in your history form. It was something that you told me when you came in. And yeah. I will, I'll put a note. You know, I, I made a note in the chart. Patient requests that this be removed because Dr. Wolf is not an optometrist, blah, 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 blah. And I, I left yeah. it alone. That was kind of like, let's get this guy out of here as fast as we can and not have like a, a showdown with him in my office. Um, yeah. but yeah, anyway, uh, that's what I remember. It was years ago, but it was just, it, it was an eye opening experience for me because I always thought of HIPAA as just purely patient privacy, but it was also yeah. a lot about patient access. Yeah. That's almost more what it is. Um, the second big part of HIPAA is of course, cybersecurity now which again has really, to be honest, nothing to do with patients' medical records. No one cares if your patient has a retinal problem. Uh, we have all the information for identity theft. And that's why people want medical records. 
They don't care your patient has herpes. They want to know their social security number, their driver's license <laughs> number, their email, and we got all that stuff. So that's why medical records are so valuable and why the cyber criminals are going after them. So again, you know, we have an obligation to try to limit that. And that's where a lot of the big problems in HIPAA are coming from right now. And that's where you just have to work with IT. You know, I, I think I, we've said something like this before, but it's like too many people think their OD degree had an IT degree that came along with it. Um, this is good money to go hire an expert. Uh, that really knows how to do this stuff properly. And it's a good investment in money. And I said, you know, the Windstream 700 router. Well, look, the bottom line is you really want a really high-level router. You want really high-level IT equipment so that you can do everything you could do reasonably to protect the transmission of these records. So it's not that it's against the law not to do that. But I wouldn't want to go to court and go, yeah, I had Jimmy next door set this up. And, you know, we just decided the AT&T business class was a okay thing because um, a judge may not decide that's reasonable. But HIPAA gives us that leeway sometimes to go hang ourselves. Yeah, okay. I think that's, that's, that's helpful. I think that's very helpful. Last one, because I'll be respectful of your time, OSHA. I don't know. Do you want to you want a hippo horror story? Oh, you got something? Yeah, <laughs> you want totally. the worst. You want the worst? <laughs> yeah, let's the worst. Hear it. Yeah, let's hear the worst. Um. So we know that, or you know, here's the thing, Chris. Unfortunately, half of our colleagues don't know. Uh, the, the feds pretty much every year come out and say half of the optometrists don't have HIPAA compliance, which is nuts, uh, but it's true. Uh, so half don't know what I'm getting ready to say. But when I say, you know, you have to have a patient sign their ANPP, their notification that they're agreeing to your policies, blah, 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 a lot of people know, yeah, we do that. Well, it gets really sticky when it comes to a minor, because minors have some rights and not some rights. And it even gets stickier because those rights are defined by state law, not federal law. So what rights do your minor patients have or not have? Well, in most states and under HIPAA, if they're under 18, they do not have the right to sign an ANPP. Uh, they can't consent to your privacy standards nor can they consent to your care because they don't have healthcare decision authority. That varies by state and depends on what care they're going for. Uh, but for the most part, they can't. Only the guardian can sign those. So here's the story. So in a very, very small rural town, and that's important because everybody thinks, you know, nothing happens in a small rural town. Yeah, it does. Um, in a small rural town, a very prominent member of the town divorces his wife. It's always It always gets down to people being ugly to each other. <laughs> divorces his wife, brings his hot new girlfriend in, tells his hot new girlfriend to take his two kids in to the doctor. The hot girlfriend signs everything, and he tells her that mom has VSP 
on the kids. So just tell them, here's the VSP information, file it with mom. Mom gets the notification and basically calls in a rage. Um, now, at this point, mom is mad at who? Not the doctor. She's yeah. mad at... Okay, right. so she's gonna get. She's getting back now. When people are in that situation, they fire off at anything in the way. Well, the doctor was in the way. So she files, number one, HIPAA privacy violation against the doctor, and secondarily, child molestation charges because the doctor has no authority to examine the children. Yeah. Uh. Simply because they didn't know or didn't have an ANPP that protects them from this kind of situation. So there's just little things like that. And, you know, and I've, I've literally had people say, yeah, you know, I read through HIPAA and just wrote my own stuff. It's like, heaven help you. Um, because <laughs> they're just, there's so many little things like this. So that's a horror story. Um, I mean, and it got lots worse to be honest with you because small town, uh, small town paper small town paper picked up on it immediately um terrible terrible uh, all over that's, that's horrible but really it's not uh, it, see that's the thing it's not hipaa it's not hipaa it's people being ugly to each other <laughs> which is unfortunately yeah. commonplace in our society now hipaa was just the vehicle to make it happen but this is why you just have to have all yeah. the eyes dotted in the team well, I think there's a lot more that we're seeing with that too. Like I, so here in Atlanta at SECO, I've met with a number of optometrists who have left, left the practice and uh, left the practice of optometry. Most of them are, are relatively young. And I think a lot of it has to do with burnout. Like a lot of it has to do with COVID burnout and, and people just being yeah. nasty to each other over time. But, um, you know, that's just a whole other conversation of the impact that, that, that it's having, not just on people, but on the profession. You know, I had one, you know, I met with one person here who it works in industry now, super nice, super well-trained, you know, like it almost, it's almost like all of industry is getting our, our uh, highest train, you know, uh, great school, great pedigree, great residency. And then they practice for a year or two and then they go to industry. And which is fine. I, I don't knock them for it, but, but there's gotta be something to what you're talking about in terms of just people not being nice to each other. That's making it so like, I don't want to mess with the public. I'm done with this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to see patients anymore. Um, and that's going to be a, that will be a problem for healthcare all over the country, not just in optometry. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, nothing we're talking about is unique to optometry. I mean, this is, this is healthcare, compliance for for everyone not just us um we just have a reputation yeah. not being a very compliant group unfortunately mm. you think that that's got to be more because we we like you said you know we we usually run relatively small businesses we we have we're basically try to be good to people we try to take care of people and then that taking care of people and being the old, you know, old nice guy that just, you know, is just a, a good old guy, no policies, doesn't really matter. That's what gets us in, in in trouble. That's what my suspicion would be. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, you just combine that with there's just so much tension and anger 
you know, in society in general. And boy, we're going off on a whole nother topic now, but, but you're right. I mean, there, there's reasons that it's become, or, or not, not has become, but let's say the potential is there for it to become less fun than maybe what you're doing yeah. right now and what I did for years. Um, because I had a blast. I know you have a blast and the little nutcases like you described, I mean, you can brush those off, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's a, there's a certain amount of, I need something to make my life good and my job has to be part of that. And if it's not doing that, you know, I fly off somewhere else and I'm not saying that's strictly a bad thing. But it does create scenarios like what you're talking about. You know, they go to work for industry. They run off to ophthalmology. Yeah. I do believe that we do have a lot of our bright and best, you know, going off out of private practice, which I know is my heart and your heart as well. So, but I don't know if we're going to solve that one today. Yeah, Chris. yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I don't think we will. So, so let, let, I'll stay focused. Last, last one. Uh, OSHA. Give me an OSHA horror story and then maybe like the top two or three things that optometric practices do that, that, that violate OSHA. Yeah. So the number one thing optometric practices do that violate OSHA is ignore it. Um, so the, the estimates are about 20% of practices are compliant with OSHA. Um, some of that comes from a totally misguided thought of, I'm just a small business, you know, it's, I'm just an optometry, I'm just an optometry thing, and it doesn't apply to me. And I, I just don't know how many times we can say that's just not true, uh, because it applies, if you have a business and an employee, it applies to you. It, whether you make widgets or provide eye care, it doesn't matter. Um, so it does apply. OSHA is absolutely the gorilla in the room. Um, it is the... It is the biggest, baddest agency in Washington and has the most power of any agency in Washington. People, you know, HIPAA is a little mouse compared to OSHA. So um, what you have to do, it's the same. You know, every, every one of these policy areas, whether it be OSHA or HIPAA or HR or um you know, patient discrimination issues, all these things, they all have the same answer. you got to have policies of how you do this in your practice, and you have to abide by them. Now, with OSHA, there are a bunch of thou shalls. It's not like HIPAA. So they have a bunch of rules, uh, like you must have inventory of chemical lists. You must have SDS sheets that go with that. You must have fire protection plans in your office. You must have fire extinguishers that meet this code and how many and where they're hung. And blah. It's just rule after rule after rule after rule. And so it's the hardest one to follow it at one level. On the other hand, they pretty much spell out what you're supposed to do. So it becomes a checklist to some degree. There's not as much ambiguity of, you know, well, how do I protect my patient's privacy? With OSHA, it's really a big old checklist, but it's a big old checklist. And some of it is ridiculous, just absolutely ridiculous. And there's a huge checklist. You don't get a break because you're a small business. You get a break because of what you do. 
So, in other words, it, it, obviously, there's probably a hundred pages of OSHA law related to crane operators and construction work has nothing to do with optometry. So, you have to dig down through everything to say what what applies to a small healthcare business. But they do, and they're even very different by state. If you have the ability to do lasers in your state, new his, new OSHA issues. If you have the ability to do minor surgery, new OSHA issues. So it, it, it is a complex monster is really what it boils down to. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one I, that's the one I think, uh, like you said, probably needs to be worried about, but most people don't worry about it. Yeah, well, okay. You want Joe? You want you want the story? story. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I always hate to say this is the worst one because then everybody's like, "Oh, that's the worst one. Nothing else ever happens." Um, but I mean, they happen all the time. They happen all the time. But the worst ones are obviously the headlines. So, um, so employee. And this is funny because, you know, we go and inspect offices all over the country. And and I see this all the time. It, you have your contact lens room. And because we have so many contact lens samples and supplies now, they go all the way to the ceiling. And so we got step stools and ladders climbing up on these things, getting on. Okay. So that sets the stage. Well, slips off the step ladder, uh, twists the ankle, continues to work the rest of the day, but goes home, hurts like cat, goes to ER. Um, not a deal, sprained ankle. Um, <clears throat> but the nurse in the ER says, how'd you do this? Well, I stepped off a stool at work. Oh, well, you know, you need to ask them about their OSHA policies uh, regarding ladders, which do exist. Uh, and she said, okay. So she goes back the next day limping <laughs> and says, office manager, you know, uh, they asked that I should ask about OSHA policies. Uh, well, we don't have to follow OSHA policies because we're just, an optometry office. Oh, so, you know, we have an online attorney that works 24-7 for free called Google. And all they have to do is go, does an optometry practice have to comply with Google? And the answer, of course, comes up in red letters. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, it does. So she goes back and says, well, I looked it up and we do. And they're like, well, you don't have to. And, of course, it goes from there. She gets an attorney, uh, not attorney, but she, she calls OSHA just to confirm. And they say, oh, absolutely. Where, who, where do you work? But she tells them about 30 days later what happens. OSHA shows up and says, we just want to look around and see what your OSHA policies are, blah, 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 blah. Well, here's where you take a government that's bad enough and apply really poor judgment. Because they go tell the doctor that the OSHA people are here and want to talk to him. And he's like, tell them I'm behind and I'll, I'll catch up with these patients and then I'll talk to them. So they sit in his reception room an hour with their badges and their vests and their guns. So they're hot by the time he comes out. It's poor decision number one. So they say, you know, we're here to look, you know, we need to see your OSHA policy. And he goes, I don't have any of that stuff. And they're like, well, you're supposed to. And he goes, you know what? I can almost quote what he said. He said, you know what? It's just like a big old pain in the ass. And we do our best to run a nice business and take care of things. Y'all should be glad that we do, do as good a job that we do. 
They escort all the patients out of the building, send the, st- send the staff home, and padlock his door shut. And he can go back into business when he can demonstrate that he is compliant with OSHA. So combination of a really badass organization with really poor decision making. Do not argue with the government about this stuff. So, yeah. So, you know, it's really bad. Yeah. When you get pulled over for speeding, you you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Probably even worse with a picture of the guy trying to cut the lock with big, uh, you know, uh, chain cutters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We actually, it's we like when you get a, when you get a speeding ticket and you and you and you tell the and you tell the police officer that uh, you pay his salary. You know, <laughs> why don't you go yeah. fight some real crime? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not going to go over too well. Yeah, I mean, we almost yeah. did them. We didn't do them exactly in order. You know, HR honestly is the area of most violations. OSHA's number two, and HIPAA's number three. And then we have all these other, you know, of course, you got to remember, you know, and we've talked about this one already before, but, you know, compliance is also all the billing and coding stuff because that's all under compliance laws as well. Right. But, you know, we've, we've talked about that one before, but it's another thing. And actually, probably that one would go back to number one, uh, even above HR. But yeah. then, then you have all this other stuff, the patient discrimination laws. The I, we, we class them as compliance laws because they're just things that you have to like, good faith estimates and all this other stuff they're imposing on us, you know. These are all just compliance issues that you have to do. Um, they're not that hard. It's just all you want to do is go see the next patient and go home. I don't blame you. I was in private practice too. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that, that kind of lets us wrap this up. You know, if you want to just see patients and you don't want to have to think too hard about compliance, Joe, where can people find you? <laughs> that was a lead in. Um, so you can go to www.practicecompliancesolutions.com, read all about you know, the easy way to do all this stuff, um, you know, and you open the door. So, you know, the the main thing, and we I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the, the one advantage, well, there's several, but one of the biggest advantages of our company is we do take all of those laws and make them apl- applicable to an optometry practice. So that makes it as simple as it can possibly be. And I'll contend makes it safer because we cover, like in HIPAA, we cover a lot of issues related to product sales, which a generic HIPAA program doesn't even recognize because that's not commonplace. Um, anyway, www.practicecompliance, or you can just email me directly, uh, joe at pcscomply.com. Um, I'll answer anybody's email. Uh, just just like you, you know, we, we, we try to help as much as we can. Somebody... Somebody wants an answer to something, they're not a client of PCS, I'm still going to try to help them um, and then get them on the road to doing things the correct way. But, you know, we're, we're here to help people out, and the whole company is, you know, owned and operated by optometrists, and we have a heart for our profession. So, you know, we're here to help people. Awesome, Joe. Uh, I can attest to that. I can say that, um, you know, I'm on a chat, chat board with a bunch of other doctors, uh, and a chat room or email distribution list, a listserv, that's what it is. 
And, yeah. uh, and Lori Sorensen will, if, if I don't chime in with an answer quickly, Lori will, will get on and either say, Hey, Chris, can you answer this? Or she'll say, Hey, Joe, can you, and I see it. I see an email that comes up. Joe Deloche says, and, yeah. uh, and he's right. Joe will get on the answer ASAP. Uh, and so I'm appreciative of that. I know there's a lot of people appreciative of that. Thanks so much for coming on again, Joe. Thanks for, for all you do have done and are doing for the profession. I really appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll have to do this again in the future. Oh, absolutely love talking to you, Chris. Uh, anytime. <laughs>